Howdy folks, welcome to The Ronin Rabbit, a Usagi Ojimbo fan podcast. I'm your host, Ed Moore, and be aware there are spoilers, particularly this episode. You can find me on Twitter at Teal Productions, T-E-A-L. I post these episodes on the Usagi Ojimbo Dojo Facebook page. BigTimeNoise.com slash Rabbit is the website. You can leave comments there. Or you can email usagipodcast at gmail.com. Now, in particular, uh, as far as spoilers go, I'm talking about issue four of the current volume, the fourth volume of Usagi, um, as it has been taken over by IDW. This is cover dated September 2019, and the story is the first part of The Hero. So it's The Hero Part 1. We open with many several pages panels of Usagi fighting white-eyed zombies, up to various levels of effect. Um, zombies, you know, you may be able to kill them with one stroke, depending on where you hit them. Uh, it's it's hard, to, hard to tell. You could do anything with zombies. I mean, they can come back, their arms can animate, their heads can, an- you know, so. But he, uh, he being Usagi, is in full battle armor, as are these zombies. In the midst of this, somebody cries out for help, and Usagi turns, and on a small rise or a little knoll in the topography is a female with another zombie that um looking back has a little bit more ornamentation on his uh, armor so he is probably a higher rank a lord perhaps the zombie lord you know i don't know how far this is going to go at this point really but uh he is behind this female holding her in essence hostage uh he tells usagi The longer she stays here, the more she becomes as us, until she is fit to become my bride. And Usagi screams, uh, fights off a couple of the zombies, you know, now that are behind him, because basically it's like the horde on one side, and Usagi, and then this knoll rise with the zombie lord and the uh, threatened female on the other side. So as he's paying attention to the female's predicament, the zombies are coming up behind him, so he turns and dispatches some more of them. And then turns back to, you know, see what the zombie lord is up to. Well, as he turns once more to fight back the zombie horde, let's say, that is encroaching, the zombie lord... Wow, I just read horde and lord. Yeah, that's kind of tough. I hope you guys can understand me well enough to to hear the difference there. Um, The zombie lord jumps from his elevated perch there on the knoll down towards Usagi from behind, because Usagi is facing the zombie horde. And the next panel, we see Usagi close a book. And he says, wow. And he's talking to the Lady Mura. Apparently she is in the process, I would I would assume, of writing a story. And Usagi was reading, you know, up to where she's gotten. And he tells her that uh, he has enjoyed the story very much. And she thanks him. We see that they're sitting on a an overlook, and they're overlooking several plots of what I assume at this point is water, uh, because there's green in between, uh, grass or some sort of field, but then there's rectangular shapes of water. So they're overlooking some sort of uh, agricultural establishment down down in the in the valley or in the lower elevation of the uh, wherever they're at. Uh, and they are having a conversation as they're both sitting here, um, Usagi having just finished reading what 
little she has gotten through in her story. She's telling him her story that she is descended from a line of writers. Uh, she indicates her great-grandfather was a poet in the emperor's court. Unfortunately, my family gradually lost favor, and now my father oversees a small distant town. In an effort to reinstate our family's prestige, it was arranged I marry Ciso, a ranking official in our lord's court. And Usagi says, wow, your husband must be very proud of your success. And she says, the Lady Mora says, unfortunately not. Sizo is a Hatamoto, a bannerman or upper vassal, and is an accomplished swordsman. But with the Shogun's peace upon the land, there's no opportunity for him to show off his martial skills. So he is a frustrated fighter having to work in a bureaucracy as we can kind of put, or as I put together from that little bit of reading. Or, she says as she's standing up, gain the accolades he so desires. So he's not able to move up because of this. Because what he knows is fighting. He's unable to fight, so he can't show his prowess. He is stuck bureaucratically where he's at. Boy, do I know that. No, I'm kidding. Um, so they both rise, and they start on a, they start walking together. Still talking back and forth. Uh, we find out that her husband is um, so frustrated that at night he takes to drinking. And in his own personality and in the drinking, he becomes even more despondent. Uh, probably abuses her, we see, as they're walking. Usagi makes mention of a bruise that's on her arm. So, now... Let me just interject here. Um, it's That's a trope that is used quite a bit. The female who is shackled to a man who does not treat her fairly, and on top of that, is in a mind space that, in order to try to get away, he drinks, and when he drinks, he drinks to excess, and when he's drunk, he beats her, and it, that, that whole thing is just yawn kind of stuff, uh, but okay, it's a way to further the plot, you know, having read this and, and thought about it and sitting here recording, I, I don't necessarily know what else uh, Mr. Sakai could have done to move the plot along in the same way, but I, I just thought, oh, well, of course, as soon as she said uh, that he was not happy, I, I immediately knew where this was going to go, and unfortunately, to this point, I was right. So uh, we see them walking, and as they're walking and talking, they're walking through these fields of these bluish rectangular uh, cutouts that that I mentioned earlier. And two things seem to be occurring there. One is that they are rice paddies, which I initially thought that they might be, but also it seems that they are um, growing fish. There, there are they're fish farming. I, I, Horticulture, I don't, I don't know what the word for that is off the top of my head, but it, it appears, I could be wrong, but it appears that they're also growing fish in these water paddies. And I thought that was kind of interesting. I wasn't necessarily aware that that was a common thing, um, I guess, until more recently, you know, fish farms. But it's cool to see it here. Um, so they're walking along. Usagi, as he, as I mentioned, notices the bruise on her arm. Um, he apologizes for that, indicates that perhaps he overstepped by even mentioning it. 
And then she indicates that she decided earlier today that she was going to go visit her father. Uh, Usagi immediately asks if he can accompany her as her bodyguard, of course. He, he would like to uh, help her get to her father's. And she is uh, very much excited by the proposition of having uh, help, uh, in essence, getting away from her husband, even if it's just for a little while, uh, and going on this journey to visit her father. Well, they've been walking a little while, and we have uh, we pass a, a woodcutter. We have seen several wood. No, it's not a woodcutter. He's carrying a, a, a bundle of uh, rice or wheat. I'm not sure. Yeah, probably a bundle of rice, it looks like. And they are approached, Usagi and the Lady Mura, by a troop of mounted samurai. Uh, looks like five of them. And it turns out these are all retainers of her husband, the Lord Siso. And they stop Usagi and Lady Mura. And the head retainer tells Lady Mura that your husband has demanded you return home. And she says, I'll be back in a few days after I have visited my father. And the retainer persists. You will come with us now. And another indicates that your husband has ordered it. Alrighty, not sure if you guys heard that. The um, doorbell was uh, chimed and had to go take care of some pain. The dudes cutting the grass. They wanted their money. So I got no problem with that. They're out there in the heat and everything. And so back on the story here, Usagi looks up at him and says, Lady Mura has given her answer. And uh, she is taken aback by it that Usagi is, is rather ramrodedly defending her. Well, of course, the retainers are like, no, uh, this, you know, this ain't going to fly. First of all, you're nothing. You're a ronin. Uh, our lord has said, so of course, because they come in his stead, they have all this standing. And it goes back and forth a little bit here until um, first the retainer lifts his sword and then in defense Usagi lifts his and a fight ensues though Usagi never unsheaths his sword the retainers of Lord Sisu do Sizo excuse me so uh, we we see Usagi ultimately dispatching yeah you know to some extent all five of these samurai never having unsheathed his blade, whereas all five of these dudes were serious, they had their blades out. But Usagi still took them down. And he says at the end here, I kept my sword sheathed so as not to hurt you too badly out of respect for Lady Mura. I won't be so generous next time. The retainers uh, mount their horses and they ride off, you know, shaking the fist. You'll regret this, Ronan. You'll remember. We'll, we'll remember you. And, you know, all of this uh, blustery kind of stuff. And then as they leave, Lady Mora asks, are you all right, Usagi-san? Usagi, closing his, his eyes and, and bowing slightly in deference, says, I am unharmed, by, but I apologize for having to be so violent in your presence. She says, thank you for sparing their lives. He says, I only kill when I have to. And here, these next, that was that was all one panel. These next four panels are Usagi Yojimbo to a T. And they are something that is so horribly missing in comic books today. As they continue their journey, she says to him, you came to my rescue, Usagi-san. He says, huh? She says, you are my hero. He says, what? 
Thank you, but I'm no hero. I just try to do what is right. And that, folks, is Usagi. In, in three, I guess if you want to boil it down, three panels. You are my hero. And he's, you know, he's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm no hero. And then he says that and finishes with, I just try to do what is right. That is just, to me, that is so, so awesome to see a, a character like that. So they continue on their journey here. They get to the next village, but Usagi says, since there's folks looking for us, it's probably not a good idea if we stay in in any of the inns here in the village. We don't stay in the village. Um, I know a deserted temple just on the other side of the village. I've stayed there before. I know where it's at. Let's go ahead and stay there tonight. They won't be expecting that, and it'll help us stay out of view. Well, as they're walking down the street um, and talking everything, you see one person here who takes a particular interest in them, notices them walking by, perhaps is listening, perhaps not, uh, follows them for a little bit too much uh, in my mind. So finally, they exit town, go on uh, on the outskirts there. They find this temple. As they go into the temple, we see a little, uh, a couple little tokagi that are spooked and they run out. Uh, I guess kind of trying to tell us that it's deserted, right? Because there are animals that are living here. They get inside there. Usagi shuts the outer door and surveys it and tells her, you know, you go ahead and sleep over here in this part. This looks like the, the best uh, still in repair part of the temple since it's abandoned. He says, you know, I'll, I'll sleep over here. Um, and then in the morning, we'll, we'll continue our journey. So they're sleeping in this temple. We see uh, here on a table is an idol of whatever, I guess, religion that the temple was for. A little tokagi curled up underneath the table. Usagi is sitting over on his side, still reading. Um, I don't know if he's going to, I doubt he's going to stay awake all night, but he would be the only one to be on watch for them. So then the final panel, we see outside of the temple from a little distance away, looking at the temple. And from either side of the panel, we see a couple uh, sword blades. So that tells me that uh, someone is outside, knows that Usagi and Lady Mura are camped inside and are about to be up to something nefarious. Um, full page illustration here of what I assume will be issue five's cover from Mr. Sakai Usagi fighting what appears to be a giant sea serpent of some sort, kind of fantasized, uh, with the, you know, that Japanese painting of the big waves from the hurricane with the little boat on the, I believe it's on the left-hand side, and the big wave churning up and about to turn over on the right-hand side. That's kind of in the background with Usagi fighting this sea serpent in the foreground. And then we have an excellent piece here uh, for story notes by Ruth Wold about the Japanese writer Murasaki Shikibu and her book, The Tale of Genji. And... Uh, Normally, if the notes pertain directly to the story, I would I would read those. But this talks about uh, an, an ancillary thing here. Lady Mura, maybe perhaps, is Mr. Sakai's take on Murasaki Shikibu. I don't know exactly, but that's what that's about. So if you want to uh, 
Read the Tale of Genji. It's a two-volume book with 54 chapters, making it longer than War and Peace, which is a very long novel. I've read War and Peace. And so that's where we end, except that I do want to make mention here on the back page uh, is an advertisement for a book from Top Shelf Comics called, or entitled, They Called Us Enemy, which is a memoir of a very young George Takai during his life here in the U.S. during a very, very dark part of our history, uh, the outbreak of World War II and Mr. Sakai and his family's detention in a West Coast detention camp. And that's, that's what this book is about. Uh, I've read the book. Very, very moving book. Um, one of the few times that I have honestly come away with a tale and been ashamed of the actions of my fellow Americans. Um, but that is what it is, and it's history, and it was not cool. But it's a very good story. Um, Mr. Sakai, I know that he, you know, he has spoken of this period of his life on and off throughout his lifetime, and I have run across those discussions. But finally, he sat down with Mr. Isinger and uh, put it in novel form, a graphic novel, and very moving, very telling piece of literature. All right. So we uh, were given the word shibito, uh, which is the Japanese equivalent, let's say, of zombie, and hatamoto, which is a description of a social, uh, well, not social, more military hierarchy in that uh, that is the person that holds the banner, uh, considered an upper, upper level vassal of a military lord in Japan. All right, next up. We have another couple stories from the 35th anniversary Usagi Yojimbo tribute book. This is the seventh story listed in the book, entitled Ronin Rats by Mr. Paul Montani. And uh, in the back here, Paul tells us that he's a crusty New Englander who wanted to be a cartoonist. Uh, the characters that he used in writing this story, indi he indicates, can be found at www.welcometotheratrace, all one word, .com. And those are these same characters that he uses here in his story entitled Ronin Rats. So we see three of them, and I didn't write it down, unfortunately, but they um, are all, they're all friends. Carl, and he explains... Sorry, flipping through here, hoping to find it. I should have written it down. I don't know why I did, didn't. But um, So they're all dressed as um, feudal um, Japanese characters. Two of them have swords. One of them don't. Um, we see that the one has brought his two buddies into this world because typically they're in a world of humans. And so being anthropomorphic rats, they kind of stand out in a world of humans. But they thought... Um, Carl uh, thought that by bringing he and his two buddies here in a world of anthropomorphic animals, they would feel more at home. So the first people they encounter, unfortunately, are people. Uh, they are the woodcutters, husband and wife. So um, his two buddies are kind of put off. It's like, well, you know, that they're not anthropomorphic animals. And Carl's like, well, come on. We'll, we'll keep going and ultimately we'll meet up with Miyamoto Usaki, 
uh, who is an anthropomorphic rabbit. So that's, you know, that's perfect for us. That's exactly what we're looking for. And one of his buddies pulls out the swords and says, Cool, that explains these sweet swords. And Carl's like, Dude, come on. Here's, here's a village up here. Uh, let's go check it out. And they walk into the village. And finally, they meet some anthropomorphic characters. None other than Usagi and Inspector Ishida. Uh, here we go. Carl and Harvey and Doug are his two brothers. Carl, Harvey, and Doug. So they hook up with Usagi and they tell him, you know, hey, we, we want to hang with you to see what your life is like and see what this anthropomorphic animal life is like. So they hang out with Usagi doing some of the more downplayed aspects that Usagi does. Uh, they're walking through the forest playing instruments here, uh, eating some of the fruitful bounty of the forest, playing Go, uh, drinking tea, flying kites, until finally... One of Carl's uh, brothers comes up and says, Doc, what the heck was all that? All we did was goof around all day, eating rice balls and drinking tea. I thought we were going to have exciting adventures. At least fight some ninjas. And Carl says, Oh, Doug, Usagi's adventures are not all about danger and fighting. They also give us an appreciation for Japanese history and culture. Sure, he gets into a bunch of scraps along the way, but while that's going on, we are being taught so much. Not that that's untrue, but uh, Doug was looking for a little bit more, so much so that he takes his clothes off, drops his sword, puts on a mask, and says, oh yeah, well I thought it was boring. I'm going to go find me those talking turtles. Those guys are wild and they'll have pizza. <laughs> Usagi asks um, Carl here, why, why did your brother get naked and storm off? Oh, never mind that grump. Hey! Can we go eat at Sakana Shogun? Usagi says, excellent choice. So later on here, we see Doug in the final panel of the story. And he says, hey, are you Kakura? I was told you could help me out. And the character looks down at him and says, a talking rat? And Doug says, seriously? Because this is a talking rat. Uh, the turtle's talking rat, by the way. Who is called... Uh... Then his name is Splinter? Is that the rat's name? Or is that the... Yeah, anyways, the, the talking rat that taught the turtles how to fight. All right. Next up is the eighth story, entitled A Promise to the Moon by Mr... I believe it's Mr. By, excuse me, I'll just say, Marcel Schmidt, who indicates he's from Munich, Germany. And... um. Tells about his little bio uh, that he likes working in black and white with acrylic paints. Um, ran into Usagi in 2008 and started reading them and has communicated with uh, Mr. Sakai on a professional level with help on how to do certain things and, and learning his craft. So, our story opens with horses clip-clopping through the woods in the first panel. Uh, and then we, we see some of our characters here. Uh, one of them gives an order. Samurai, ride back and order the convoy to stop. Protect Lord Kumo and wait for my signal. Now, looking at these creatures, I could not tell exactly what they were. I, I thought they were insects of some sort, but I wasn't sure. And then the samurai that was ordered to ride away says back, Yes, General Hormiga. Uh, and I thought, hmm, Hormiga sounds interesting. So, turns out, I believe that is Spanish for ant. 
which I believe the English is Formiga. Um, and, and so it's like a, a genus class gene order order or genus i think of the ant so uh the main characters in this story this story are going to be ants so we see that they're out and about transporting their lord from point a to point b don't really find out too much more than that uh some of the lord kumo's retainers uh find a ice wagon that has been waylaid and the uh, purveyors of ice killed the Lord Homiga here, right? Is that what I said it was? Hormiga? Yeah. Orders for the Eta to come and remove the bodies to clean up the scene before their Lord gets near because, of course, that is too uh, uncomfortable of a scene for their Lord to, to see. Now, the Eta turns out to be another insect, a different kind of bug, and I don't know if it is intended to be uh, uh, something that eats carrion or a bug that eats the leavings of animals or, you know, what what exactly it is. But we see that the, um, the whole nature of this bug is that it is of the lowest social class. Um, it was thrust there by Lord Kumo when he killed his father, uh, took his mother, laid down an edict of Shinokosho, which divides the social hierarchy into levels, uh, indicating that there is a bottom level of which these people, the Baraku or the Hamlet people, Japanese untouchables, are a product of or are a, a member of. So everything about this Ita is that they are you know, carrion eaters of of society. So they come up. Uh, one uh, one one bug uh, must be living nearby. Comes up and starts digging holes to bury the bodies. And we see that the ice sellers uh, were probably a husband and wife, and they had a child with them. So now there's an unintended child who the Lord Humiga. Uh, is about to dispatch because they don't need the extra weight. Uh, the Lord Kumo doesn't need to worry about. And this general is concerned that the boy will grow up and believe that Kumo is responsible for the fact that under his watch, his mother and father died and so will become a thorn to Lord Kumo in some way, shape, or form. So better than allowing that to happen, we'll just kill the dude and we won't have to worry about it, is what Hormiga is thinking. Pretty pretty hardcore. But suddenly a Ronin uh, that is nearby, uh, oddly enough, stands up and says, uh, no need, I'll take the boy under my care and we'll, we'll be good. You won't have to worry about him. I'll raise him. It'll, it'll all be good. So the samurai tells the Eta that he and the, the Ronin and the child of the ice sellers will stay at the Eta's house this evening. So our story then transitions there. We see the Eta uh, speaking with the young ant, I guess we'll say. Uh, and that's where we find out some about uh, the Eta's life. When the young ant goes to sleep, the Eta goes out and 
is looking for the samurai that said he would go out and uh, take watch. So he goes out and finds the, the ronin ant, and we find out that the ronin ant has some issues with Lord Kuma as well. Uh, Kuma is responsible for his father's murder. The Eta tells the Ronin Ant more of the story of how and why he is an Eta, and all of it basically is because of Lord Kumo as well. So here are two uh, simpatico, shall we say, creatures who have not fared well under the rule of Lord Kumo for various reasons, but um, and and similar to some extent as well. So the next day, the Eta bug and the young ant are out walking around and they start walking amongst some hot springs and they get separated in the steam. Now, we never see the young ant again. I don't know what happens to him. But importantly, though, is that the Eta uh, runs into the Lady Kumo, who turns out to be his mother, taken by Lord Kumo all those years ago. So they have a little reunion here, and in the midst of their reunion, the Ronin ant comes rushing up. Uh, we, we hear him, as he's stumbling toward them, mumbling, goal not accomplished, end near, taking his prized possession. So uh, when we see him, he seems pretty, pretty beat up and hacked up here. So apparently he tried to attack Lord Kumo, who we know is in the area, was not successful, and in wandering, running away, went to these hot springs because he knew Lady Kumo was there. Okay. And dispatches her in front of the Eta. Now, there are a couple panels of violence here, just in word. We don't necessarily see what happens. But at the end, Lady Kumo is dead. The samurai ant is dead, and the Eta bug is standing over top, both of them, holding a short sword. So, I would take what happened as the Kenji, the uh, ronin samurai ant, the ronin ant, killed Lady Kumo, but then the Eta bug killed the samurai, or finished him off, really. And so, the Eta is left um, having... He says, I promise, and that's in reference to the conversation he had with his mother about living his best life despite, you know, what, what has befallen him up to that point. So, um, both of these I, I enjoyed a little bit different artwork style. The Ronin Rats was a little bit more cartoony. Uh, a Promise to the Moon, that story was a little bit deeper. Well, not a little bit. It was far deeper than Ronin Rats. Um... A couple little confusing instances to me in A Promise to the Moon, and those instances may have just been caused by uh, space constraints and as far as how many panels and pages you can write, but uh, I enjoyed both. Um, I've enjoyed every story. Now, this is eight of the ten stories in the book. I've enjoyed every story in the book so far. Uh, Mr. Schmidt gave us the words Eta. Uh, which is a body remover, or the lowest social class of the Shinokosho, which is a, a social class structure of the Edo period. We were given the word Ronin. And also Baraku, which is in reference to the 
Eta, uh, which translates to Hamlet people. Uh, some people just call them untouchables. Much like m m my knowledge of untouchables is from the Indian um, Hindu, I think, culture. The, the subcontinent of India, not Native American Indians, but India. So that's, that's where I've run into untouchables before. Okay, uh, that finishes up everything for this episode. Thanks for listening in. Hopefully this wasn't too long an episode for you. It's about half again as long as they typically are, but I appreciate it. Um, next time I cover a new issue, it'll be issue five, and then I'll cover the final two stories in the tribute book, hopefully giving those creators a little bit more opportunity to spread their word uh, for those that may or spread their creation, excuse me, uh, for those that may listen to my podcast but not have access to the tribute book. Uh, thank you, everyone, and I will talk to you guys next time. Ciao. The Ronin Rabbit Podcast is a Teal production, and as such, is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, non-derivatives, 3.0, unported license.